You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 219 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate, otherwise known as A.L. Tate, otherwise known as Al, otherwise. (laughs) I could go (laughs) And they're also incredibly, they're so incredibly different, aren't they? It's like my secret, (laughs) not very secret writing name. I know. How are you? What's been happening? (laughs) Uh, What's been happening? Well, you know... Um, I've just been working on my manuscript that we talked about last week and sort of work, you know, I'm still kind of reading that to my small first reader who's, he's, it's an interesting thing, you know, cause I have the two boys and so with the Mapmaker Chronicles and even the first book of the, uh, Ataban Cypher series, um, my oldest son was my first reader and he's a real reader. Like he's book boy. He's got his own book review site. He still reads incredibly widely, um, which is interesting. You know, he's, he's 14 now. And, uh, I have lots of people say to me, Oh, you know, how do you keep him, you know, as a, re- as a 14 year old boy, how do you keep him reading? And I'm like, well, it's more of mm-hmm. how do I stop him from reading? Yes. Um, which is great. You know, you have those kids, they're readers and, yeah, and, and I'm lucky right. to have that one. And then I have Mr. Eleven, who is more of the, you know, uh, energizer bunny kind of um, guy. I always say I'm raising Buzz and Woody, and I really am, you know, from Toy Story. That's 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 who I've got in my house. I have Buzz and I have Woody. And Mr. Eleven is Buzz, and he is to infinity and beyond, and he is forever jumping, <laughs> leaping, running, rolling, you know, just constantly. He got a Fitbit. This is hilarious. Oh. He got it. He got a Fitbit, so he after much agitation, you know, months and months of agitation, um, he got a Fitbit for Christmas because I was just like, dude, what do you want a Fitbit for? Like, really? And he goes, oh, I'm just, you know, I just want, like, whatever. Anyway, so he got him the Fitbit for Christmas. I thought, well, at least it's not a screen. You know, this is good. Yes. And, um, and he <laughs> – it's hilarious. I'm contemplating getting him just to wear mine so that I get a little boost on my own steps every day. He gets yeah. he averages his best day so far has been about thirty two thousand steps. But oh my he averages God. he averages twenty thousand plus. Oh my God. And this is just you know, this was even on school days he was averaging like when he's sitting in a classroom six hours, he still averages about twenty thousand steps. He just never funny. stops. I know he's crazy. So I say to him, you know, we're going to, I need you to listen to me, read this out loud to you. And he's like, yeah, okay, great. Let's do it. You know, and his attention span is about five pages and then we have to stop so he can go and, you know, twirl or do whatever it is he's going to do. So it (laughs) takes quite a long time. Like my other, with my older son, I was able to read, you know, entire 5,000 word chapters, but this guy is more, yeah, no, we're not doing that, mum. So it's just, it all takes a bit longer. But you know what, what's really interesting about it? If he's interested, I know it's really good because- He's he's because he's he's the kind of guy that he's got a lot of books and he reads every night, but if he finishes a book, I know it's really good and I will read that book to find out what it is about it that has really captured his imagination. Like he's reading Wonder at the moment, um, and he is absolutely engrossed in it. He's engrossed in it, and I never thought he would be. It's not the kind of book I would have bought him, but someone gave it to him for Christmas. And he absolutely loves it. And I just find it really, really interesting what what speaks to him as a, not a reluctant reader, but more of a casual reader, more of a, okay, yeah. I'll read it because you told me I had to sort of thing, you know, and someone, so if it, and if you've got one of these guys, one of these in your house and you're writing for children, take mm. really careful note of what they finish because yes. there's something 
about that book that you want a piece of. So, yeah, anyway, today's piece of advice from Al. Yeah, great advice. I love it. I think that that's really Mm. cool. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Well, I haven't been reading books to (laughs) 11-year-olds. Um, you don't know what you're missing, Val. <laughs> I know. <laughs> clearly, clearly, you don't know what you're missing. Uh, what in my current week? Well, I, I have had house guests, and oh, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not like domestic. You're not great. So you're not great house guests, are you? Great. So it's no. it consumed my entire existence. Um, it was mm. it was lovely, like um, having. Mm friends to stay um you know particularly this friend I don't get to see very often so it was wonderful um but one's vegan and one's vegetarian so mm-hmm. yeah that's that's something I've that's an interesting thing because you're not um, a chef are you <laughs> no I'm not a chef <laughs> you're not a chef Let's face it. How did your Thermomix go, though? Did you use Did you use it to create wondrous, you know, vegan yeah. things? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, no, not that there's anything wrong with the Thermomix. Uh, my partner uses it on a regular basis, um, but uh, yeah, you know, I just think perhaps I need to upskill in the hospitality department. So I don't have a lot to report this week because that's consumed my week and um and it was it was great fun um but we ate out a lot (laughs) anyway (laughs) let's move on we want (laughs) we we want to give a big shout out to zesty zoe who called her review uh headlined it inspiring and motivating on itunes and she said, Al and Val are amazing and informative in ways that complement each other. This podcast has kept the writing dream alive in me despite the craziness of life getting in the way. You should definitely have a listen and I promise you won't want to stop. Wow. Thank you, wow. Zesty Zoe. Love Thanks, that. Zesty Zoe. I really like yes. her name too. I love the yes. word zest. It's cool. Do you think it's yes. a great word? Zest for life. It is a word. Yes, I love it. I love it. I like I like the word and uh, and I love the review. Thank you so much. You've really made our day. And of course, if you have thirty seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd love it if you did because it helps us in the rankings. So, um, but let's move on, shall we, Al, to the world of writing and publishing this week? Oh, let's and 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 and, and I'm going first because I'm excited. Okay, I'm really go, excited, go, and I've got yes. huge congratulations for you, Val. It's for you. Congratulations to you and your amazing team because the rightlife.com, which is a great, you know, huge writing website, came out with its list of 100 best websites for writers in 2018 and who should be on that list but do you like that? The Australian (laughs) Writers' Centre website. And it's like a massive yay all round because I know how hard you and the team work and I'm just wrapped. You you are part of that team. So congratulations to us. Well, I am, but, you know, I'm not writing the blog posts or anything. So, you know, I'm just like, you know, I just, it's, yeah, yay team. Yay, team, and thank you to all of our listeners and all of our students and people in the wider Australian Writers' Centre community because we're doing it for you and you guys continue to inspire us every single day. So thank you also to The Right Life for including us at number eight. This is very, very exciting. Under creativity and craft. Yes, and we will put the link in the show notes if you would like to see the other 99. So, yeah, it's uh, the show notes you can find at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. Now, the other thing we want to highlight to everyone is we have compiled and curated our top 10 freelance writing posts of 2017. And Mm -hmm. in one spot, and again, we'll put the link in the show notes because this appears on the Australian Writers' Centre blog, in one spot you can just click through the 10... 10 awesome tips basically for freelance Mm. writers everything from 
have you considered these freelance writing revenue streams, which is one of the most popular posts on our blog. And it's actually based on a masterclass that Alison and I ran at the Storyology Conference run by the Walkley Foundation. And it was called Turn Your Passion into Productivity and Profit. And we go through, it's extremely comprehensive. We go through all sorts of different freelance writing revenue streams that you might want to consider to add to your to your arsenal. Uh, and to mm. add to what you can offer to people and to add to the different types of clients that you might get in order to make a certain income if that's what you're interested in. But this list also features what freelance writers need to know about tax. I know that's mm. for some people. That's a really popular one, I know. Yeah. Eyes glaze over, but it is a popular one because mm. you should know and it's not hard. It's very, very easy. Also, um the kind of questions you should be asking when you're interviewing an awesome post by Alison, uh, a very thought-provoking piece. If you're not getting the right answers and you're not getting enough meat and guts and colour in your story, maybe you're not asking the right questions. So that's definitely a good one as well. I just think it's a great list, isn't it, Al? It is a good list. It's a really good list. The other, one of the other ones that's very, very popular off that list is the little Ask Valerie post that you wrote about how to get into corporate writing. And this yes. is another this is another one that comes up over and over again, people saying, you know, I, because corporate writing is boring on for the most part, not always, but, you know, for the most part. It's meat and potatoes sort of writing. It's not particularly glamorous. It's no byline attached. But, oh, my Lord, does it help pay the bills. And Oh, yes. People often wonder how to get break into it. Like what do you, you know, how do you find that sort of work? How do you become, you know, a corporate writer? And uh, it's a great post that tells you how to do it. And I think that that's probably yeah. worth a look if you are freelancing because, you know, one of the things we talk about constantly and one of the things that obviously that first post that you mentioned um, goes into is that if you're freelance writing, you've really got to look at several different income streams. You've got to yeah. look at diversifying your portfolio because you are never going to make enough out of just one kind of writing to actually um, sustain you if you're, if, if, if you're trying to make a living. And this is, you know, this is a different a different setup to you're just writing occasional um, stories or whatever to supplement other a, a day job or whatever. This is I'm going to be a freelance writer and I'm going to make a living from it. You have to actually look at, at lots and lots of different ways of using your writing skills. And one of the joys of, of writing skills is that they are so incredibly transferable. And, you know, mm -hmm. once you get the, the hang of different styles of writing, um, appreciating that different styles of writing require a different approach. You can't just yes. go in there and prima donna your way through corporate writing. It will never work for you, trust me. And you have mm -hmm. to be prepared to do writing by committee when you do corporate writing, mm -hmm. which is one of the more frustrating angles of mm -hmm. it. Um, but, you know, it's it's a really important uh, – it's, it's important to be professional enough to be able to diversify your income stream, I think. That yes, would be one thing absolutely. I would say. I love mm. the way that you've put that. It's important to be professional enough to diversify your income stream. And when you mm. do, you can make an extremely lucrative income if you mm. if you do diversify. Also because corporate writing is very, very lucrative and if you can set up your systems in such a way that you're doing it efficiently, it, it, it mm. becomes even more lucrative. And I mm. think the way to make it non-boring is to write for companies that are in industries that you're interested in. So if you're interested Absolutely. in nutrition, right for a nutrition or something to do with wellness kind yeah. of company if you're interested in yeah, fitness yeah, right for yeah. a, so that sort of thing yeah. so you can you can make it non-boring it's just that if you're not interested at all in insurance and you want to write about insurance and there are some people who are interested in about insurance um well there then, are you know, and you know what I've done I have written about superannuation and tax and all manner of you know not you know, obviously interesting topics, unless you bow. Um, yeah, but I love tax. The other key, the other key <laughs> to it is to challenge yourself to make it interesting. Like, yeah. because yes. you know, you're writing for an audience. You have to remember that whatever you're doing, there's an audience involved, and if you can. Um, stay within the guidelines that you're given, which is very important with corporate writing, but still manage to make it interesting for not only yourself, but your readership, then they will have you back over and over and over again. 
Yeah, definitely. So that's a great list. We won't go through all 10. If you want to have a look at all 10, then check out the um, the post, which we'll put in the show notes. It's so you want to be a writer.com.au. So let's move on now to, oh, yes, the text prize, Al. Tell us about yes. the text prize. Well, the uh, text prize for young adult and children's writing is open, people. It is open. They are calling for entries. Text mm. Publishing is offering a $10,000 advance on publishing royalties and a contract with them. Um, so if you have written a young adult or, you know, children's manuscript of some kind. The last winner was a middle grade story um, called The Extremely Weird Thing That Happened in Huggabee Falls by Adam, is it Cece? Was that how you would say it? Anyway, um, so that was the winner, middle grade for 2017. Of course, young adult novels have won in the past. Um, It's Mm. definitely worth, look, two things here. A, it's a deadline. And for you to actually submit your work somewhere, Um, and the deadline is the the 2nd of February, so it's only a few weeks away, so you will need to be fairly advanced on your manuscript. So, A, it's a deadline. B, it's going to get you over that. You know, we talked, I think, in the last episode about the fear people have of submitting. Um, You know what? Whack it in there. You've got nothing to lose by entering a competition like this because, you know, if you make the shortlist, then yay, if you don't, then you're one of, you know, thousands that don't, but you had a go and that's important. And um, C, it means that you have to polish your uh, manuscript up to a level that you think is going to be suitable to enter such a prize. So you're advanced again because the, you, mm. your manuscript is that much more polished and okay. So if you don't make the shortlist or you don't win, you, you get it back, you have another look at it and you decide at that point, you know, what changes you might need to make, or maybe it's just not suitable for this particular prize and you submit it somewhere else, but you've got over that barrier of sending your work out. So Start your new yes. year off right by entering yes. your manuscript. You've got nothing and to remember lose. remember what we said last week, get out there and show your work. And if yeah. you're scared to do it, remember the other thing we said last week, which was feel the fear and do it anyway. So these are yes. our mantras for the year, I feel. We've got to work. We've got to come up with something that's not quite as cliched, though. We have to work on that. We are authors oh, no, and like writers them. after all. I like them. <laughs> all right. Okay. <laughs> Fine. All right. Let's stick with Let, the let's stick with the tried and true. Let's move on to our giveaway this week, which yep. is um, a rural fiction two book pack. So we Ooh. have Ridgeview Station by Michael Trent, a sweeping tale of love and loss and the highs and lows of life on the land from an utterly authentic new voice in rural fiction, and the last. McAdam by Holly Ford, an unforgettable cast of characters with an irresistibly entertaining tale of romance, suspense, and the unbreakable bonds of friendship. So if you would like to win a rural fiction two book pack, then go to writercenter.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 29th of January, so make sure you get in. And if you're listening to this podcast episode in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other competition here for you to enter at writercenter.com.au slash win. Now, Al. <laughs> oh, I'm bracing used myself. To, used to pre, pre, I'll start again. Used to pre, <laughs> Pripaveni naslovo tidnie. I'll try that again. Yusta pripaveni naslovo tidnie. I have no words at all for this, Valerie. So, do you know what language that is? I don't know. Russian? Have a a guess. No, no, Russian. I did. (laughs) Okay. I did guess. Well, yes, sorry. Your. Um, response, I'm actually looking up for you, needs to be Yesim Pripraven. Can we just pretend I said that? Okay. Everybody, that everybody that was so ready in Russian in Al's yes. voice, not Val's voice. Okay. <laughs> Can we move on? It's not Russian. It's Czech. Oh, it's not? Oh, Czech. Sorry. Apologies. Yes. It was Czech. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this week's Web of the Week is Copacetic. Copacetic. Mm. This means extremely satisfactory. So you might say, after eating banoffee pie, she was copacetic. 
Yeah. <laughs> or just comatose. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Copacetic and comatose. Some people think that it originated actually among Southern African Americans, especially those associated with jazz. Like you might say, mm. oh, that riff was copacetic. Mm. Copacetic, I like that. It's I don't use word. it very often. I haven't used it. Um, I do see it used quite a lot in um, well, in American crime novels. Yeah, they use that right. word quite a lot, yeah. Really? <laughs> well, when I say quite yes. a lot, don't you think like more than once is quite a lot for a word oh, like yeah. that? Like it's, yes. it's the kind of word that does come up regularly in, uh, you know, Harry Bosch and sort of books set around L.A., yeah, okay. I, I, I guess. Cool. I do read a lot of these things. Yes. All right, copacetic. See if mm. you can use I it in a sentence this week, everyone. I like Please it. Please do. And, if, and, yeah, and, or if you want to spread the word, you can always say to your friends, used to prepraveni na slovotidnie. Or they're going to say that Val's <laughs> pronunciation of Czech is not copacetic. I know. I did try once to learn because I had a PT, a personal trainer at the gym, who was Czech. And so I thought, oh, you know, I'm spending all this time together, like doing these um, exercises. I may as well learn Czech. So we would count my reps in Czech and, 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 you know, just say, I'm strong in Czech and things like that. But I've forgotten it all. I know they mm. have that PT. And um, you didn't have to say, are you ready for the word of the week? So that didn't give you I any didn't. grounding in what you needed to know. Not, yes, have to say that to him. I just had to say <laughs> things like, I have muscles. Yes, I knew how to say those things. All right, so let's move on to our writer in residence this week. And that is Martin Puckner. Now, Martin Puckner. I'm has sorry, I'm book- still. <laughs> sorry. What, I just had this vision of you saying, I, am, I have muscles in check. Yeah, I used to all the time at the gym. Oh, I'm sorry. Please go back to the intro. Sorry, Martin. It was great. It was kind of like two for the price of one because I was paying, you know, for the PT session, but I got a language lesson out of it as well. So, yes, sorry, Martin. Martin Puckner has written an awesome book called The Written World, How Literature Shaped History. I loved this book. It was so cool. In fact, I was so inspired by this book that I painted a piece of artwork. It's my first ever piece of artwork inspired by an interview for this podcast. And, wow. Um, yeah. I, I, you I better put it. that in the show notes so we can see it. Okay. Yes. All right. It's, uh, Maybe it, and we can it's... make prints, Val. We can have merch. <laughs> finally, 219 <laughs> episodes later, we finally get merch. I want <laughs> yes. merch. I don't understand why we don't have any. I'm sad. <laughs> Anyway, keep okay, going. Okay, think of merch next. So um, uh, Martin is super clever. He's a Harvard professor and editor. So he spoke to me, you know, from his base in, in America. He holds the Byron and Anita Wien Chair in Drama, English and Comparative Literature at Harvard University. And he has a fascination with words and language and the way words and language have developed over the years. And that is what this book is about. And I thought it was cool to have a chat with him about all the incredible findings that he's had in in his book. So let's have a chat to Martin. Thanks so much for joining us today, Martin. Thanks for having me, Valerie. Now, your book, The Written World, How Literature Shaped History, just tell us, for those people who haven't read the book yet, what is your book about? It's a big picture view of world history as seen through literature. So what I want to argue is that writing technologies and storytelling intersected at a certain moment about 4,000 years ago. And that was a kind of the big bang of literature. This is when stories started to be written down and this made them incredibly powerful. And that ever since for the last 4,000 years, we've been living in a world suffused by literature, really shaped by literature. And while I am exploring in this book how this happened, which texts survived, which texts shaped our world, and how they did that. So it's, it's about the intersection of different kinds of storytelling 
with different kinds of writing technologies. Now, why did you want to write this book? Well, I think because I realized at some point that we all are living at this incredible inflection point, that we are living at this very unusual time of revolutionary change when it comes to writing technologies, how texts are written, how they are read, how they are distributed, what formats we write these texts in. And so I wanted to look back at the prehistory of what we are living through and focus on these earlier inflection points like the invention of paper mm. or, or papyrus or parchment or the alphabet and to see what happened at these earlier moments um, in order to get some kind of sense of what what is happening all around us. Yes. Now, 4,000 years is a very long time and lots of things and innovations and inflection points can happen in those 4,000 years. How did you choose the ones that have ended up in in this book or the ones that you've obviously deemed to be significant? Yeah, so I basically looked at moments when texts that are clearly important, I sometimes call them foundational texts, Mm. when they emerged and what kind of technologies they were able to use in order to survive, in order to replicate themselves, in order to travel to different parts of the world. So I, I was following these two trails. I was following these important shaping foundational texts like the Epic of Gilgamesh or the, the, the Hebrew Bible or Buddhist sutras uh, and and many other texts. And then I was looking at the way in which they used writing technology. So I was always looking at these intersections. So there, there, there are other important texts that are not as closely connected to revolutions in writing technologies. And there are some revolutions in writing technologies that took a while in order to, ha- to really influence the way literature worked. And I always, was looking at these at this intersection. Now, <laughs> tell me a little bit about how you got in, interested in this space. Is this something that you were always fascinated by as a child? How did you get into this world back back at the start of your career? Well, so I was actually not a child or teenager who read all the time. I was not super bookish, though I did read there are certain texts that certainly stayed with me, like the Lord of the Rings. And but but I was I was not a particularly bookish person. Uh, it was really only when I went off to college that I discovered literature in in a full way. And it stayed with me ever since. And because I lived in different parts of the world and studied various languages, I think I was always interested in in a kind of approach to literature that looked not just at you know, one national tradition or literature from a particular region, but at, at, at different kinds of perspectives. And, and then, so that's sort of the prehistory. And then about 12 years ago, I got roped into editing one of these large world literature anthologies, the Norton Anthology of World Literature that really spanned everything from the invention of writing to the 20th century and in a very comparative global way. And the work on that anthology really forced me, in a sense, to to look at the big picture and to see the patterns. Uh, And um, during that time, I read a lot of world history, and that's a very established genre, and some of it is more popular and some of it is more scholarly. And then I started to look for something similar for literature. And I just didn't find it. And and at some point I said, well, I guess I'll have to write it myself. <laughs> so you say in the introduction, as I was, you know, in the introduction to this book, as I was exploring the story of literature, I became restless. It felt strange to think about the way literature had shaped our history and the history of our planet solely while sitting at my desk. I needed to go to places where great texts and inventions had originated. Now, I have to say, I read that and I thought, I want to be him. (laughs) I think there could be no greater joy than traveling the world, going to where these amazing texts, fascinating inventions uh, occurred. Now, (laughs) 
tell me some timelines here. Uh, when did you kind of start thinking about this? And then in your research and travels, did you then approach that in a structured fashion or did you just think, oh, I'll just do this in my holidays? Or h- how did this all actually come about on a practical level? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. And it, I mean, it started sort of haphazardly. This is, a, I mean, I've always liked to travel and I care about literature. So at some point I started to think about the relation of these two things, how reading certain texts really makes you look at a landscape or history of a place differently um, and how uh, uh, going to a place, actually being there, seeing the landscape, talking to people, everything that's entailed in travel also makes you realize uh, makes you realize things about literature that you hadn't noticed before. So it, it, it sort of happened at some point, almost haphazardly, naturally, but then at some point I realized, oh, this is actually something that could really contribute to my writing about literature. And then I started to go about it in a little bit more um, systematic fashion. But there's still there, 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 you know, th- this is a time when I would give lectures in certain places or have invitations. And then I would think about is there a nearby place that could play a role in the book where I could discover something? And, you know, not all travels made it into the book, obviously. But I at some point I realized, oh, what what I've sort of stumbled into is actually a helpful way of talking about literature, making it vivid, but also showing how how it mattered. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one example is I, I was very interested in the Caribbean author Derek Walcott, who lived in on the small Caribbean island, St. Lucia. So, of, I, of course, I've always wanted to go there and meet him and, and talk to him. And that was, of course, that was wonderful. Um, but then on that small island, I realized how basically every person I met was very was into Derek Walcott, had stories about Derek Walcott, was able to quote lines from poetry of, of Derek Walcott. And I realized to the extent to which this one writer had really shaped the experience of most people on this island. And and I think that was when, when it became clear to me how valuable and and fun, of course, it can be to to travel and think about how literature has really shaped places. So apart from meeting Derek, of course, you would have come into contact contact with some very old or particularly amazing texts in your travels. Do right. any stick out as, as something that just made you feel, you know, uh, butterflies inside or, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm clutching my heart at the moment, if you can imagine that kind of emotion. <laughs> Well, so I traveled a lot around the Mediterranean and quite a few of the texts I I deal with are connected through the Mediterranean Sea. And I mean, this is not a particularly original thing to say, but, you know, going to Troy, for example, was really great since I had spent so much time thinking about Homer and not just thinking about Homer, but thinking about how Alexander the Great was influenced by Homer and essentially thought about Homer as he was conquering the better part of Asia. And he took um, his copy of the Iliad with him on on his entire conquest and slept on it every night. And so traveling to Troy, but also to the many Hellenistic cities that that Alexander the Great uh, founded uh, um, in in this kind of Homeric reenactment really um, drove home this this point that that again, how much literature had shaped this hugely influential military campaign. And and the other thing was that when you when you go to these ancient cities and look at these ancient ruins, I, at some point I realized that, the, that there are two types of buildings that were still standing, they were still much more visible than most other parts of these ancient ruins. And those were libraries and theaters. And and both of these huge structures were 
devoted to literature, to the enactment of literature in theaters and, of course, the preservation of literature in libraries. And I, I just realized how much this, these ancient civilizations had invested in literature and how seriously they had taken it. Yes, and in fact, in your book, you write about, and correct me if I'm wrong, how Alexander the Great, well, in in the city of uh, Alexandria, one of the conditions, if you were a ship that passed through Alexandria, you had to kind of hand over or, or lend the city scribes all of the literature that was on your boat so that the city scribes could copy it. Uh, exactly. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I just thought that was fascinating. It was fascinating and it and it and it showed how these scribes were able to take advantage of their advantageous position in this port city on the Mediterranean Sea and how they exploited it uh, and to build the greatest library uh, the world had ever seen. It's um, and I also and the other interesting aspect of this is that there's a rival, library in, in Pergamon, what is now Turkey. Um, and they realized that they were dependent on the papyrus that that Egypt exported and which was the writing material used used at the time. So the librarians at, at Pergamon invented a better technique of creating a writing surface out of stretched animal skins, what we now call parchment, pergamentum, named after that city. And that was born out of the rivalry of these two great ancient libraries, the Library of Alexandria, the Library of Pergamon. I like that story mm -hmm. a lot. Nothing like a bit of competition, right? Now, exactly. Another person that you write about, and I probably am pronouncing it wrong, but is Ashurbanipal. <laughs> That's very nicely pronounced. Is of that course, correct? no one knows no well, one knows yeah. exactly how he would have pronounced his yes. own name <laughs> all right so i'm going to go with ashurbanipal and he invented or somehow spearheaded like his own dewey system or or some form of categorizing all of the documents in 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 his um collection is that right that's right. And he, he's a fascinating figure. So this this took place near what today would be Iraq, Mosul, uh, that was so recently terribly destroyed. Um, and Ashurbanipal, the king, was an unusual figure because he himself knew how to read and write. Mm. It was not that common for kings to master this very difficult skill. So he had advanced literary training. He trained with one of the best scribes of the region. And this is, of course, Mesopotamia, the first real writing culture in, in the world. And so he got really interested in this, in these texts that even for him uh, were already ancient texts. And he started to collect them. And as Ashurbanipal's empire expanded, he was able to collect more and more texts and he created a library and then created a first system of categorizing different texts and thinking about what they had in common. Uh, these were ad administrative texts. Some had to do with religion and divination, but his greatest possession was the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is really the first long epic foundational story, a fantastic text. And it was only because Ashurbanipal collected these texts, this text on clay tablets. Um, and collected many copies that this text survived, or I should say was was buried when the library burned down. Mm. Um, and of course, fire is terrible for almost all libraries because papyrus, paper, everything burns, but not clay. Clay hardens when it is exposed to fire. So these clay tablets lay dormant in the earth for 2000 years before they were rediscovered in the 19th century. So yes, Ashurbanipal, one of my heroes. Yes, absolutely. Now, the other thing, one of the things that you say here is that writing began as an, began as an accounting technique, which I think is fantastic because I'm absolutely passionate about writing, but I am a former accountant. So it, it ah. <laughs> ties in very well. Can you just explain to listeners how writing began as an accounting technique? Right. So it, it really began as a way of writing down 
economic transactions. And we can think of this in a very simple way, like, uh, you know, I sell you three cows. And so this is the now the document that 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 codifies that. So these kinds of transactions, it, it was a notation system for these kinds of transactions, contracts, you could say, or sales receipts. And and then it became more and more elaborate and um, a kind of bureaucracy sprung up and and the few people who knew how to read and write who had mastered this difficult technique um, were running the first sort of imperial bureaucracy. Um, so at this early stage, writing has very little to do with literature. Literature was what we would call literature was transmitted orally. There were singers and, and bards who remembered stories and would recite them on special occasions. But at some point, one of these accountants, um, Valerie, um, started to write down these stories that were otherwise only transmitted orally. And that that is the moment when writing technologies started with for very mundane purposes, intersected with with storytelling and, and the birth of literature as a result. I love it. I love it. So now. The Diamond Sutra, which is the earliest surviving printed book in the world. Can you just tell listeners what the Diamond Sutra is and and um, what they should know about it? Yeah. So, so the Diamond Sutra is one of many texts that students of the Buddha wrote down in order to preserve their master's words. Now, the Buddha much like Jesus and Confucius and Socrates didn't write himself. He spoke to his students. He had this live interactive relationship to his followers. And um, the fall after the Buddha's death, the followers transmitted the, the, the things he had said, the anecdotes about their master, the wisdom of this master orally for many generations. But but, but at some point they started to write them down and the result was these sutras that, that, that captured exchanges between the Buddha and his students uh, and observations about what, what it meant to be an, uh, a follower of Buddha. And these Indian Buddhist followers carried these texts further and further afield all the way to China, where they were translated into Chinese and became quite influential. Um, and it was in China that these texts surrounding the Buddha availed themselves of these two new and incredibly important inventions. And that was paper and print. So both of both paper and print were in, first invented in China. And uh, they were important. Paper was important because it lowered the cost of literature because beforehand writing what, what would, would have been done on, on silk, which was very expensive or on, on, on other natural fibers that, that would disintegrate very quickly. So the, the technique of paper really, you know, we still use it today. Mm. Um, and print, of course, lowered the cost of reproducing literature. Now, it was qu still quite cumbersome because often it wasn't done with movable, movable type. So you'd have to carve an entire page on onto wooden blocks and then you could replicate uh, uh, this text many times. Mm -hmm. So it only made sense for texts that were that had many readers, uh, texts that really needed to replicate it to to use to proselytize this new faith, Buddhism. So these Buddhist texts really lent themselves to these new technologies because there were many, many readers who wanted to read them. And the, the, the monks who were who devoted their lives to these texts wanted these texts to be widely read and distributed. So this is one reason why this Buddhist Sutra, the Diamond Sutra, became an early adopter, if you will, of these new technologies. And this is the earliest surviving printed texts we have today. Amazing. Now, and it's many, and it's many hundred years 
before Gutenberg. Yes, amazing, amazing. Now, um, apart from some of the texts that we've mentioned and some of the people that we've mentioned, what are some other people or cultures that have had the most significant impact on writing or, or on literature then? Well, there are... You know, we ha you have the great writing cultures like like China or Greece or the Middle a the Middle East with 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 the Hebrew Bible. Um, you have an explosion of literacy in in Europe when the printing press gets reinvented. Mm. And I talk about the fact that again, it's a, a religious foundational text, the the Bible in this case, that becomes an early adopter of. Uh, of, of, of print uh, uh, in, in Europe. And then, of course, the Protestant Revolution follows from that as well, because Martin Luther became an expert at using this new print culture that emerged, emerged in Europe. Mm -hmm. But I also go to, if you will, more far-flung far places. Uh, one of the epics that I became very, very interested in was the West African epic of Sunjata. Mm -hmm. uh, this is an epic that most, like most, like the Homeric epics, like the epic of Gilgamesh, commemorates the founding of a kingdom in Western Africa um, that would have existed in the Middle Ages. And that was transmitted, though, orally for many hundreds of years and only written down in the 20th century. Uh, and it, it, it was uh, the, the, this text, I found it very moving to think about the fact that these foundational national epics don't just emerge, didn't just emerge in the ancient world, you know, thousands of years ago, but they are still doing so today. And there are still these written epics out there today that haven't really made it into the world of literature and are still waiting for that for that moment. Mm. Now, you're a professor at Harvard, you're an academic, and you're very used to doing a lot of research. And in a book like this, sometimes, um, it, which is very, very readable, in fact, it's one of those books that I think my partner got very sick of me reading it, because every so often, I would just, in, I would just blurt out, did you know that blah, 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 <laughs> insert some <laughs> other interesting fact, and then five minutes later, did you know that blah, 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 blah. So, uh, you know, he, he, he was very um, uh, I think he found it fascinating, but probably could have done with a few less interruptions. However, in a book like this, which is so um, easy to read, it I'm assuming that you had to at some point make a culling decision on stuff not to include because everything you research isn't necessarily going to you know, be the most riveting thing if you, you don't, you can't include everything. Am I right? Correct. Oh, absolutely. And it, it's very hard. These yes. choices were very hard and there are a lot of things that didn't make it into the book. So how do you make those choices? What's your, what was the, uh, the, the parameter? Yeah. So apart from the one I already mentioned, namely that I always was looking at intersections of important texts yes. with new uh, technologies, I wanted to combine stories about well-known texts like the Homeric epics, how they, the, 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 the Hebrew Bible um, or something like the, the Communist Manifesto with lesser known texts such as the Epic of Sunjata from West Africa that I just mentioned or another one that I just love is the Popol Vuh, the, the Mayan Epic. So this is the, an episode from the New World and one of the things that fascinated me about the Popol Vuh is that it's the only independent literary tradition we have because all the other writing cultures uh, of the ancient world developed on the Eurasian landmass. So there it's, it's possible that they, that the idea of writing spread from this one place in, 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 in Mesopotamia to, to Egypt and, and Greece and, and, and China in indirect ways. But we know for certain that writing was invented a second time completely independently in, in the new world because there was no contact uh, during that time. And and that second writing culture led to the Popol Vuh, that wonderful Mayan epic. So I wanted to combine some of these better known texts with 
lesser known texts that I thought should be better known or the the what I consider the first great novel in, in world literature, the, the Japanese tale of Genji written by this extraordinary lady in waiting at the high end court around the year 1000 of the common era. And so I guess I had a kind of proselytizing impulse of getting some of these texts. I mean, they weren't completely unknown. They're all important texts, but uh, I think especially for Western readers, uh, um, I, I, I wanted to make a good case for those. And so combining better known texts with lesser known texts was, I think, one additional sort of criterion. Mm. Now, this is uh, a massive, <laughs> a massive uh, opus. Um, are you already working on your next thing <laughs> or you're recovering? I, I, I am working on my next thing and it is in a sense the exact opposite. Namely, it's about something only I know about. What's that? So this is a book about a secret language, um, a thief's language that was uh, spoken in Central Europe in for a long time from the late Middle Ages to the to the 20th century. And it, it is a combination of German, Hebrew and Yiddish. Uh, but it turned into a secret language of the underground, essentially. And, and, and it's, it's a fascinating language, and, but it's almost entirely forgotten. Mm. Almost no one knows about it. And the only reason I know about it is yes. because my uncle was obsessed with it. Really? So he was so he was a writer and he's discovered it and then he started to incorporate it into his own poetry and he even started to translate bits of world literature into this thief's language in order to make it a legitimate sort of literary language. Um, wow. And he died. He died very early of a brain aneurysm. And and when I went off to college, I went to my aunt and and uh, asked her about it. And then she gave me basically his archive uh, of his research into the secret language. And I've been carrying it around with me for about 25 years. And I've decided now is the time to write about it. Wow. And do you know if any texts were written in this language? So it was basically an, an only a spoken language. But there's one group of people who wrote it down, and that was the police, because the police oh. started to realize that it was this the thief's language. So they started to collect words. And in the 19th century, they started to force some of these speakers of this language to write down essentially scenes from the underground in that secret language and provide the the key, so to speak, vocabulary list. So there, there, there are some texts in this language, but they are written under duress. Oh my God, that is fascinating! I cannot wait for your next book to come out. <laughs> that <laughs> that's is very nice of you. That's brilliant. Obviously, you have um, your you have a real keen interest interest in language and how it's developed. How many languages do you speak yourself? Well, I, I do speak a couple of languages. Uh, I grew up with German and English. Uh, I lived in Italy for a while and studied there. So I have Italian and, and French. And then there are some languages I studied to some extent that I can read dead languages like Greek uh, and, and, and Latin. And I taught myself some Yiddish in order to better speak this Thieves' language that 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 my uncle was so interested in, which I kind of grew up with in in the sense that he would teach me words from that from that language. So I feel like I'm the last speaker or, or sort of speaker of this thieves' language. So um, yeah, so there are some languages I studied a little bit, and and others I I know better. Wow! If you have codified it in some way, you must. I, I must get my hands on it, and at least I can speak. We can speak it to each other. Then I love language. Exactly. And, that would be really and, and, fun. And no, and no one will will be able to understand. That's right. <laughs> That'd be great. All right. Wonderful. <laughs> Look, this has been an absolutely wonderful chat. Uh, such such a fascinating book, The Written World: How Literature Shaped History, and um, uh, I loved it. I loved it. So thank you so much for your time today, Martin. Thank you for having me, Valerie. 
Okay, we know our community loves short story challenges. They're a fantastic way to get the creative juices flowing, exercise your writing muscles and finesse your skills. So hang on to your hats. You're going to be blown away by our exciting news. Beginning 2nd February 2018, the Australian Writers' Centre is launching a new monthly short story competition called Furious Fiction. It will go live on the first Friday of every month. When a new challenge opens, you'll be given a set of prompts and you will have 55 hours to give us your best 500 word or fewer story for the chance to win, drum roll, $500. That's right, the winning story every month comes with a cash prize of $500. This is the first competition of its kind and we're so excited to launch it. The first challenge will open on 2nd February 2018. So head to writerscentercomau slash furious and join the Furious Fiction fan club. That's writerscentercomau slash furious to be notified as soon as the competition opens. Good luck. There you go, Martin Puckner. It's really interesting. Like he's he's an incredibly clever man. I just, very clever, very knowledgeable. So yeah, and I'm just so well. I mean, obviously, you said you know you really really enjoyed the book, and um, I have to yes. say that after listening to that, I'm quite keen to read it myself. But I um, am just fascinated by the fact that it's in, you know you found it so inspiring that you went and created an artwork based on it. You know, I was only kidding about the yeah. merch, but that I mean, really, that's that's amazing. Well, I'll put the link in the show notes, but basically I loved the fact that I learnt so much from this book. And so I, it's one of those books where, you know, my partner gets would get really annoyed because I'd go, did you know this, did you know this, did you know this every so often? And also um, I just love the, I'm mesmerised and fascinated by the, the story of the development of language and words. And so one of the things that we just, you know, as you heard in the interview, was we t- talked about the Diamond Sutra and that the Diamond Sutra is the oldest printed book in existence in the world. And mm. I and obviously being the oldest printed book, it was uh, very influential and impactful in the development and spread of language and stuff like that. So the artwork that it inspired me to create was uh, was kind of based on language. So I use some colors that I'm just obsessed with at the moment, some silvers and blues and 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 blacks and various shades of blue. And I wrote the title of the book. So the title of the book is The Diamond Sutra. It's also known as The Diamond That Cuts Through Illusion. And I wrote the title of the book in a language and I thought, well, what language shall I write it in? And I thought, well, I want to write it in a modern language. So I wrote it in binary. So all of the shapes, uh, so they're silver circles on written in binary and if they're if they're complete if they're solid circles they they represent the um, ones and if they're empty circles obviously they represent the zeros so you can look at this artwork and just look at it as an abstract art with some nice shapes on it or you can go that extra level and actually translate the binary um, and know that it is actually the title of the oldest printed book in in existence so that's where that came from <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Wow. I mean, wow. But also, can I just take a moment to say that, Valerie, we've been talking for 219 episodes and I have been filling you with my wit and wisdom for all of that time and you have not created a painting based on our conversations. So I've got to say I'm feeling a little bit miffed here. Like no fair to middling, no banoffee pie, no how are you (laughs) out. No, are you ready for the word of the week, Al? No, it's in the works, Al. In the works, these clearly because you know, I like honestly, this is inspiring stuff. <laughs> masterpieces take time, Al. Masterpieces take time, and yours, the one inspired by you, is going to be a masterpiece. <laughs> oh, oh dear, it's, it's, it's emerging. It's emerging. It's emerging. It's okay, like the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Okay, it's we have to have go now. Impact. We're finished. It's over. All right, I yes. can't, that's, can't carry that's out right. useful conversation <laughs> at this point. <laughs> okay, so we, we've come to the end of this week's episode, so where do we find you online, Al? 
You will find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val? <laughs> You'll find me <laughs> at Valerie Koo. That's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram. And connect with me on Facebook as well. And also connect with both of us within the listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Photographer podcast community and click to join. We'd love to have you in there. Writer. Thanks for so listening. You Want to Be a Writer podcast community. What did you I say? Oh, my God. Did I? That's your other one. <laughs> Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. It's really time to go, and thank you so much for listening. No, can I just say that uh, because – at the our our junior girl in the office has been making me – made me cups of tea, and um, I said to her, my God, I'm not not waking up, and she's made me cups of tea all day. And she goes – and I said – and at the end of the day I said, "Um, I need the decaf now, otherwise I won't sleep. And then she said, you've been having decaf all day. So she's been making me decaf all day. And like, that's why I wasn't waking up. So I'm sorry, everyone. Search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook. Bye. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Chat to you next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>